Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash TWIP and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 30% off your account for six months. This week on TWIP, is Apple's Final Cut Pro 10 designed for photographers? Tennessee outlaws emotionally distressing images. There's a new Lytro camera that lets you shoot first and focus later. And Google rolls out reverse image search. It's Saturday, June 25th, 2011. And this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP, your weekly helping of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show are Mr. Alex Lindsay, Derek Story, and Jeffrey Totaro. Hey, guys. Hello, Hello. Frederick. Awesome. This is, a, this is, is going to be a good show. We've got lots of good stories to talk about. Um, and before we get into that, though, um, Jeffrey, you haven't been on the show in forever. So right. what, have, what have you been up to and you know what's going on in your world? Well, the, I guess the... Uh, back in February, we did a uh, workshop down at the Palm Beach Photographic Workshops, which was an mm. architectural photography workshop. We had, uh, I don't remember exactly, six or eight people. It was a really great group, nice mix of um, of skill levels. And uh, that's like a four- or five-day workshop. And then uh, coming up in July, I have a, a really fun one coming up with, through Phase 1. And this is their uh, acronym is POTUS, which is the Phase 1 Digital Artist Series. Mm. And this is their first architectural workshop. So... Myself and uh, Christopher Barrett from Chicago are going to be teaming up to teach this one. And um, all the users get, for the uh, duration of the workshop, everybody gets a nice uh, Phase 1 IQ back um, and camera to use for the duration of the workshop, which is cool. Oh, I thought you were going to say they, they got to keep it to yeah. take it home with <laughs> me. <laughs> I was like, I was like hey. where can I sign up for this? <laughs> yeah, that would be good. But um, it's uh, it, sh- it should be a lot of fun it, uh, working with the new IQ series backs. Uh, should be should be Anyone who hasn't seen those are... Nice new digital backs, and they've got sort of like an iPhone-like interface on them now. So. Oh, finally! Oh, yeah, so so the high end the high end cameras get it, but the the DSLRs don't get it yet. Yeah, yeah. So uh, finally, because um, I use a, a Phase One back now, P forty five plus, which is a great back, but I'm very interested to to give this uh, IQ one hundred and sixty a try. Awesome. Yeah. So cool. yeah, so, so we'll, that and then the usual 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 um, architectural photography work going on too. So. Cool. So we'll we'll throw links to that stuff in the in the show notes so that Great. folks can click on over to that. Derek Story, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Uh, well, last weekend, about this time, I was getting up at three uh, thirty in the morning because we had a workshop and we went and shot the hot air balloon festival up here oh, in Sonoma nice. County. Nice. It was such a blast. We had such a good time. <laughs> is, that, is that such a blast? Is that a play on words because of the you know? Well, you know, it's just become part of my balloon talk now. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yeah, you were lighter than air shooting. Right? Oh yes, I was higher than a kite. You bet. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Alex Lindsay, what have you been up to, sir? Uh, we have been, um, you know, working on the studio mostly. So yeah, I, uh, I, know. I, I hear it's to- stunning, right? It's getting there, and pretty excited about it. Um, you know, it, it's you know, of course, it came in three times over the budget, and um, which was significant when we started, and um, but but it's much better. It, Fortunately, it's coming out better than I had imagined. So, um, you know, we've got a couple more curtains to come in and we've got to do, you know, so all the physical stuff is done, you know, grids and green screens and 
and everything else. Now we have to wire it up, so we have to build some patch bays and and uh, build out the control room and so on and so forth. So, but but it's uh, we're already shooting with it. We shot uh, Final Cut. I'm sorry, uh, Mac Break Studio uh, on Friday. We shot eight, eight episodes uh, on Thursday night. We did a live uh, Final Cut Ten uh, discussion with uh, Steve Martin and uh, Mark Spencer, and it went off fairly well that's really cool that's yeah really cool. and so so we've been but the studio has been become the the focus of uh of much uh upset and excitement <laughs> it's the center of the universe up there <laughs> yeah exactly yeah cool i'm i'm coming up to see it oh my gosh you have to see and you have to see leo's side too leo um it, it, you know when he was building it i wasn't i have to admit i wasn't totally sure this was all going to turn out for leo you know it was it was a lot of there's a lot of money going into it and i wasn't totally sure it was going to turn out i was a little concerned and now that the furniture's coming in oh his studio is so gorgeous really it's oh. just it is so hot and and so uh so anyway, I'm just, uh, you know, Roger Ambrose, who, who designed it, just did a dynamite job. And uh, Leo has to, you know, he has to set the standard. I mean, he's this, you know, the, the pod father in the center of the podcast. I mean, universe. broadcast stations are going to be looking at Leo's st- studio and just be and be taking notes. I mean, it's just it's Good. just so, so well done. And so I'm really, really excited that we get to to share that uh, with him. So it's uh, very- that's very cool. Well, you mentioned uh, Final Cut Pro X, right? So yes. is it Final Cut Pro X or Final Cut Pro 10? 10. OK, Final, Final Cut, Cut Pro 10. 10. Um, it should have been X. So I hear, I hear there's the, the, from the rumors I hear now, I haven't purchased it yet, but from the rumors I hear the X or the, the 10 Roman numerals should have been before the Final Cut Pro. Well, so. well no, what's funny is, is that someone told me, yeah, it should have been Final Cut Pro X because it's going to be my X. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, um, but you know, it's, so here's the, here's what's happened is, and, yeah. I, and I think this is the reason that we're, we're talking about it on, on TWIP is because I, I think that actually Final Cut Pro X is a huge. Wait, Final update. Cut Pro 10. Final Cut Pro 10 is a huge uh, uh, opportunity for photographers who want to get into video. Uh, I think that this is, uh, you know, what you're seeing right now. You're seeing a lot of people, you know, uh, upset on the on the internets um, about the uh, about the new version. Um, the new version is a complete change. It's, it's there. It sh- shares very little DNA with the old version. In fact, it doesn't, doesn't show any. Uh, it's, it's a complete rethinking of of. Uh, uh, of editing um, now it, it obviously does share a fair bit of dna not all the dna it's kind of remarkable but it's complete rewrite but it definitely feels more like iMovie uh than it does the, the old final cut now that the the bad news about that is is that a lot of editors are very upset about that um, there's a lot of things that were taken out that you know like for instance we have things that we can't do in the new version we can't do multi-cam editing we can't do um you know you know some people are connected to final cut pro server uh, some people are connected to. There's all kinds of professional tools that are no longer in the new version at the moment. Now we have to remember that Apple can update these very seamlessly now, uh, as you buy it through the App Store. So there's, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff slowly come back in. But the point is, is that there are a lot of things that a lot of editors are very attached to that Apple just, you know, uh, took away. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm guessing that five or ten percent of the of the Final Cut market are going to move to Premiere and Avid. Uh, or they're going to stick with Final Cut 7 for some period of time. But, and what they're really upset about is everyone's been waiting for uh, two years for an update. Um, they kept on hearing that this thing was going to be great. Then they got it, and they realized not only is it not what they want, but they're not going to see any more development in the app that they're using. That's why they're upset. And so yeah. you're seeing a lot of that, and it's scaring a lot of people because they, you know, they're like, oh, all these people don't like it, and it's got bad reviews on, on the App Store and everything else. But, but if you're a photographer, if you're listening to this show – 
Um, the thing that you really have to put in perspective is this app was made for you. <laughs> that, that's the yeah. whole thing. And that's you, what I wanted to get at, right? So, so like, like to paraphrase what you said, the editors or the people that make a living and have been making a living for the last decade or so have been using these pro tools. And then suddenly Apple just, it looks like, yeah, from my perspective, it looks like Apple just turned left, right? Yeah, but, but here's, let's put it in perspective. 90% of the editors out there making money with Final Cut could still use, could use the new version and they will find that the new version is faster and better than what they had before. Really? So this is not yeah, this is not but there are 10% of the things we live in that 10% world. I mean, I just know I know a lot of people who use Final Cut and most of them when I look when I think about the kind of stuff that they're editing, what what, what I think about what they're the, the new Final Cut is going to improve their world. Um, but for 10%, and we live in that 10%, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, you, live a, in, you live in that 10%. I right? live in that. I, I, live in, I live in a 1% version of we use all the little features and we yeah. dig way into it and we do all these crazy things. The only thing we don't use that's really affecting us is we never hooked on to Final Cut Server because our naming conventions and file structures are so driven mm-hmm. um, that we didn't want to give it over to Final Cut Server, which turned out to be a good move on our part. Yeah. Uh, although we're going to have to kind of give that up because the like Aperture, the new Final Cut just kind of handles all your media management. To Which some is degree. cool. Like from my perspective, I'll tell you when I first when I first saw it, you know, I got up that morning. I'm not, you know, I go through my news and I say, okay, Final Cut Pro 10 is out. You know, so I go to the 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 uh, App Store on the Mac and I look at it and I look at the comments. And I'm like, whoa, you know. And I was about to buy it right then. I'm like, okay, I have to buy this. You know, the the knee jerk Apple person reaction was, okay, I got to buy this. I didn't buy it after seeing those those comments, so I didn't. It went on Twitter, and of course, I'm looking at what all the other guys are saying on Twitter, and of course, it was filled with those ten percenters that you're referring to, Alex, that are like, "This is crap. This they're, is they're, not they're, for they're, us." They're apoplectic. Know? I mean, I, and I yeah. and I have lots of friends that are just apoplectic about the whole thing. I mean, they mm-hmm. just they just are. You know, Apple has screwed us, and blah blah blah. And, and and the thing is, is that I do think that what Apple has done is fairly harsh. Here's the number one mistake Apple has made is that they did not continue to sell Final Cut. They basically end of life Final Cut 7. What, yeah. what Apple needs to do, and it's going to be an about face, and it's going to look bad for Apple, but all they need to do is continue to sell Final Cut 7, do some bug fixes over the next 12 months, and tell everyone you've got 12 months to decide. The, the bottom line is, is right now, because they just took it right off the market, if I'm Fox News uh, and I'm using Final Cut in the field, I now cannot buy another copy of Final Cut 7, even though I can't use the new version for the kind of things that I'm doing. Yeah, and no. so this is, the, this is what creates this huge upset, and it's going to create this massive... Uh, you know, people, people would just get, you know, get the new Final Cut 10. They would... Um, I think it's 10. Anyway, so get the new Final Cut. They would, they would work on it. They would um, test it, so on and so forth. Uh, and they'd be, they would be upset. That they'd be bummed that, that it was moving, but they wouldn't be so upset. But what's, what, what's upset is that they, they can't expand now. They can't buy any new copies. They, they can't move forward. They can't move backward. You know, and, and so now they have to, you know, they have whole pipelines that they've spent 10 years building. So that's what people are upset about. If Apple, Apple needs to release, relieve some of that pressure, you know, yeah. and, and, they're gonna, and it's going to look bad. And, you know, shame on Apple. They should have known that. They should yeah, have told totally. what was going to happen. I mean, this is, you know, and, and, and um, I'm not going to mention who, but I was talking to some friends that said, you know, what they really should have called this was Final Cut 10 or Final Cut X. You know, they should not have made it a... Um, oh, you mean drop the pro. They should have dropped the pro. And, and or iMovie Pro is what I was hearing. I don't think, you know, that, that I don't... It's a lot more than iMovie. I don't think it's accurate to say that it's iMovie um, 
iMovie Pro because it's not you know it, it's it's a it's a it's a lot more than that, and I think that would belittle what it was. But I do think you could call it Final Cut Ten or Final Cut X, yeah. um, and, and and it would have been fine. And then and then a year or two from now, you release a new version that, and I would have you know I would have made it ninety nine dollars or one forty nine. I would have made it you know taking the Pro out, and then I would have made a Pro version that I released for three ninety nine. Two years from now, that has almost all those features in it. I mean, that, that's that's how I would have approached that process. But mm-hmm. let's get back to the. I don't want to turn this whole show into a thing about Final Cut, but yeah, that's a mag break show. Well, Derek's story. But, what? So what's what's your? You know, before we end this Final Cut mm-hmm. decision, mm-hmm. I know you've looked at it, you've downloaded and played with it. Is it for photographers? It is. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally excited about it. And why? Why are you excited? So, so Alex represents that one percent at the top yeah. that that he you know he knows what the delta of the features that are missing from a pro workflow, right. but from my workflow, you you speak to the ninety percent of people that are like me. They're like, okay, every now and then I might want to put a video together and throw it on YouTube or Vimeo or something. Can I do it with this tool, or should I oh, yeah. jump over to Premiere? It's more than that. I think it'll elevate uh, our skills. Our as photographers who who work with video, the the last big assignment I did uh, where I went to Charlottesville, Virginia, I shot video. Eighty percent of my assignment was video. So you know, a photographer, you know, shooting a whole lot of video now, and this is just going to be a, a godsend. I never resonated with the old Final Cut. I mean, I I tried. I actually tried it. It's one of the few pieces of software I never really warmed up to, and yeah. this right away. Uh, you know, it's it's it feels good. If you're coming from a traditional package, if you were coming from Avid, if you were coming from Premiere, if you were if you came from that that traditional background, then Final Cut 10, you know, made uh, you know, I mean, the old Final Cut made sense. It, it did all those things. But the the issue is is that if you are coming from a um, if you coming from iMovie or coming from not doing this and coming into the video world, which everybody is on, the, you know, all professional photographers are on their way to adopting video in some way shape or form Mm -hmm. and and the thing is but you don't understand what bins are and you don't understand how all this you know what's a three-point edit and how does this all work and you know like all of that stuff doesn't make sense unless you've been in the edit world for a long time and final cut you know final cut x or final cut 10 you know final cut pro uh you know it it takes all of that stuff away and it, and, it, and it says you know what as you just bring in your videos you can start editing on immediately we'll transcode them for you if you like yes, we'll fix the yes, jitter absolutely. we'll take out all the we'll grab all that metadata for you we'll even go through and identify whether you have a two shot or a one shot you know we'll you know we'll do all of that stuff for you you know we'll let you group things together it's much simpler and if you're not coming from a traditional edit world um, it's going to be much simpler i think that apple you know, I was talking to a marketing, someone who heads up marketing um, at a company, and, you know, they've been using, you know, iMovie, you know, and this is the, you know, I, I've actually talked, it's not just one, it's three or four different people that work in marketing that, that use iMovie to build videos for their website. And they were just like, you know, I could never get into Final Cut. It just didn't make sense. But, but, but when I look at, you know, what Final, what this new version does, it is exactly what I needed, you know, to, to just produce the stuff. And so when you're talking about photographers moving into it, when you're talking about marketing uh, you know, departments building web video. When you're talking about EDU, co- uh, corporate, and when you're talking about some independent videos and so on and so forth, um, you know, all of these things are great opportunities uh, for um, you know for Final Cut. And I think that they're going to double or triple their installed base. Uh, but I also think they're going to be great for Avid and, and Premiere. They're going to do better. They're going to get more um, as a result. But they are. Uh, but I think it's good for everyone. Yeah. And, and, and I honestly believe I'm going to become a better filmmaker uh, because of this product. 
I, I think I had sort of – I was stuck in between two worlds. I had outgrown iMovie, uh, but I didn't resonate with Final Cut Pro 7. And now I feel like I can take the next step. And so for, for me, I'm totally excited. So, Jeffrey, on your side, so the mm-hmm. – you know the the representative of the architectural medium format you know guy on the show does this does this even you know hit your radar at all or is this just this is something those dslr guys are doing well i'm i'm very interested in in video and and we think about the niche of photography that i'm in architectural photography then the niche within the niche is these architectural videos which um i've seen a few good ones and i've seen a few that are um, little, you know, just a little boring, you know, a bunch of like dolly shots moving down corridors and it's like, okay, but so what? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested in exploring, uh, video and I think, cause I know virtually nothing about editing video and I'm not really sure I want to know anything about editing video, yeah. but I think this, um, uh, this new version of final cut pro, um, might get me at least, uh, to dip my toe in, so to speak, to give it a shot and at least understand it. Because when I think of doing video, I, I think more of hiring people like Alex to do the video. Yeah, totally. Because, Outsource it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm not entirely sure uh, it's the best use of, of my time aside from you know, understanding the basics of it. And, but um, I do like to, to keep up with the technology and understand what the, what the potential of all the technology is. But yeah. um, also, I, I'm, and I think Alex, you guys touched on this in MacBreak this week. And this seems like another step for Apple in moving much more toward um, cons- almost like consumer only products. And when you look at the trajectory of, of a lot of the software, I mean, I remember when Final Cut Pro first came out and there was a, I forget what movie it was, but some movie had been, you know, Hollywood movie had been edited on it and it was huge. And everyone's like, wow, Apple really makes some pro pro apps and things. And now they seem to be taking a step back from that. And I think a lot of us worry that the Mac pros themselves may disappear at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that would be, that'd be trouble. Um, because I rely on that a lot. So it's just interesting also to see uh, what path ap- Apple is actually taking. Well, and I do think that I will say that I think that what we're going to see is the huge – I think we're going to continue to see upgrades with Final Cut. I think it's going to become much more pro. And I think that there are a lot of very pro things that you can do with the new version. I think that one of the other sleeping uh, – you know, what, the sleeper in this whole story is Motion. You know, Motion 5 that just came out yeah, is I was ask you about that. $50. You know, it's $50 for a – and just to put it in perspective, we did 200 visual effects shots for a feature film in motion. So the thing is, is that, you know, it is, it is a – you know, you can do it – you can do some heavy production in motion. Um, now, I admit we used a plugin that we wrote to kind of extend motion a little bit to make that really work. Um, but the point is, is that, is that the um, uh, motion is incredibly powerful. For $50, that is a – that should be knee jerk <laughs> to buy motion because if you want to animate from you know to and from stills, add lower thirds, add graphics, do it fast and easy. Uh, you know, it's motion is incredible, and for fifty dollars, just insanely, it's insane good price. Um, the well, value. What was the price that before? Uh, it, it, well, it was three hundred dollars when it was available separately, and then it got bundled. It got pulled into the Final Cut Studio Suite, which kind of made it, a lot of us upset because there was a lot of stuff we were doing that was only motion, and I wanted to have lots and lots of of um, installs, you know, across fifteen machines of motion, and I now had to buy all of Final Cut Studio just to get motion installed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a it's a big deal, and and it's another one that if you just want to play around, with, if you just want to animate stuff, if you don't see yourself editing long form pieces. Uh, and you just want to animate stuff and animate your pictures and move things around and do do some keying keyer in the new one. And this is as someone who writes keyers that this just destroyed my my business. Um, uh, the keyer is exceptional. 
you know, it's just it's really, really, really well done. But is that something that photographers need to pay attention to? Like, I think that this well, new tool in, that, in Final think, Cut should they look at motion as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, the whole that whole absolutely. little suite for four hundred dollars, you're getting a whole suite that lets you do you know between compressor, motion, and and Final Cut. You you can't mo- the you can't really take full advantage of Final Cut without motion because motion the way it's they're they're connected now is that motion gener- builds all the templates, builds all the effects, and then publishes those to Final Cut. Um, th- this is all new in the new version. And, and so as a result, you're going to want to have motion if you want to do a lot of... If, you're do- if there's a lot of things you do over and over again and you want to kind of build a process around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just have to say that if you're... A, if, if you're I, I believe that it, you know, for 90, 95% of photographers out there, you have to be thinking about video and you, and the old versions of doing it and the heavy editing versions of, of stuff just didn't make sense. And I really think this new version um, is going to just be a godsend for photographers. All right. So bottom line here, but Alex and, and, um, and Derek, should I, after the show is done, should I boot up the app store and buy this piece of software? Run, not walk. Run that walk. Okay, then my second question is, if I'm, I'm sitting in my iMac right now, if I buy this on my iMac, can I put it on my MacBook Pro too? You can. You can. Now, here's the, here's the way that the licensing works, um, is that it doesn't look. So you can, you can download it any computer that you're logged into as your user account. So like the stuff that you would get with your iTunes or any other app, for home use, if you're just using it at home, you're licensed to put it on as many machines as you're logged into. So uh, that's another whole thing about you know this whole app store thing is that you can just uh, if uh, if you have six computers at home and you're just and you're using them for home use uh, or single use, you can uh, you can just install them on all of them. Um, if you are the technical technically in the EULA, if you are a business, if more people, more than one person's using the machine, if you're, you know, so on and so forth, if you're a business doing all of this stuff for commercial purposes, yeah. at that point, you're, you're only licensed to use it for one machine for one copy. Um, and uh, so, so you would need to get them for over. Now, Apple's not doing anything to look for that. It's just that that's what you're licensed to do. So if you're trying to keep all your T's crossed and dot, uh, I's dotted, you need to get one for every machine. Now, the thing to put in perspective is Final Cut Studio costs, twelve hundred dollars before so you could buy four of them for the same cost you know Mm -hmm. so or three of them with all the pieces of it so so the thing is is that you you know it's one third the cost now that you can go across all of these um all your machines uh, that you need to uh at home though if you're you you can put them on all your machines and it won't you know if you're doing it for home use it's it's totally fine yeah that was the other thing that's that stopped me from buying it was i I had heard you know i'm using the social media network i'd heard that if you buy it on one machine you couldn't put it on another machine so i'm uh, no no i i have it i i bought i bought it and it's great it just shows up in the app store so i bought it on my on my tower put it on my laptop but you know you know in 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 the office we'll we'll be buying them for all the machines but it's you know it's it's uh but it's easy here cool and and frederick get motion too I, of course, I'm going to get motion as well. And you know what I am before I move on to this first story, which is awesome. Um, I am lamenting the demise. It looks like of Soundtrack Pro. Where did it go? It's gone. No more soundtracks. Did you use that at all? I really had a hate hate relationship. We kind of moved uh, you were, it awesome. drove me crazy. I mean, it just you know it was it was a great idea, but they it was so it looked pretty, but there were so many things where it was just heavy and slow and everything else. And I have to admit, I was using a lot more of the Adobe products to. Yeah, I, I use the Adobe version of that. So. What is, what is it? Uh, Audition is that the Adobe? Version? No, it's uh, Sound. What is it, Alex? I, I use Sound Booth for a lot sound of my booth, sound yeah. booth. Okay. And, yeah. and Audition is. 
yeah, the, and those are those are great fast. Um, and I and Pro Tools is you know I I've actually been starting to use more and more Pro Tools. Um, uh, I have access to that, and so I, I um, and Pro Tools is incredibly powerful. I mean, that's the standard. And so, so between the Adobe ones and Pro Tools, uh, I you know those have been better solutions. And 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 I, I I'm I'm glad they just kind of gave up on it because it was a, it was a draw on Apple resources to keep on working. Yeah, and we know they're hurting for resources right now. <laughs> yeah, you know they're not making that much money. You know, you know, you know it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, they need to put a PayPal donate button on the website. Maybe they'll you know get out of the hole there. <laughs> All right, the first story that I want to talk about. Hey, Jeffrey, before we wanna... get to that, do we have any? Do we have any sponsors? Oh, um, yes. Thank you for that. We do have a sponsor. Alex, uh, who is our sponsor? Sponsor. Oh, uh, we want to thank uh, Squarespace.com, uh, who is a fa- they are a fast and easy way to publish your high quality website or blog. Um, this is what I. This is what if you go to Pixelboard.com, if you go to DVGarage.com, if you go to BorderSack.com, my 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 um, my blog. All of those are on Squarespace. Very different. Some of them have e-commerce. Some of them have custom CSS. And mine just has whatever I can do inside of Squarespace in about five hours. Um, Squarespace is really, you know, it's just such an easy way to build stuff up. When people ask me, I'm I'm building my first website. How do I, you know, get that done? This is, in my opinion, this is the way to go. It's optimized. So if you're a beginner, you can do stuff. If you're a CSS expert, you can do that. You've got hundreds of templates to choose from. Uh, you have all the stuff kind of built in that you would need nor- normally need. So if you want, um, you know, it's got the website tracking already built in. You can handle deal with permission. Uh, you can deal with, you know, if you want to put up a gallery, if you want to put up forms that people have to fill out, if you want to put forums that people can be part of. All of that stuff is is all built in. You can have your Flickr photo display coming up or Twitter widgets or Google Maps. All these things are all there for you to just throw right in. Um, it is you, you, It's all WYSIWYG. You just kind of drag things out and set it up. So um, it is if you're trying to if you've been stopped because you didn't want to deal with like how do I install it on a server this is all in the cloud you build it all up and it's just a great way to you know kind of sign this stuff up now you can get a 14 day trial for free so you don't need to put in your credit card you don't need to do anything else you can sign up for an account and um, and it's a month to month after the free trial uh, if you want to continue and uh, we've got a new uh, this is um, you know you can you can um, uh, you, we've got a new promotion for twip listeners only uh and that is if you um if you go to squarespace uh uh com slash twip and use the offer code six uh, the number six the number six uh if if you uh, go but squarespace.com slash twip if you go there um you can get 30 percent off uh your squarespace account for six months so and it's not even that expensive as it is so, you know, if you've been thinking about this, don't, you know, don't listen to me. I mean, I'm, I'm just some geek. Go up and try it. I mean, it's 14 days um, for free. You can just go ahead and try to build a website. If you can't build it, then this isn't the thing for you. But you, I think you're going to find that it's just really easy to throw this stuff together. And I have to say, the service is amazing. Every time we have a problem with the website, we make a phone call or we send an email out. And bam, I mean, it's like minutes we get stuff back. It's, it's amazing. So um, definitely check it out, squarespace.com slash TWIP. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Alex. All right. Story number one. Um, this is really interesting, and this is this is uh, going to be a controversial story. And we know we always shy away from those on this week in photo. <laughs> uh, but apparently, the Tennessee governor Bill Haslam has signed a new law that makes it a crime to post images to the internet that quote frighten, intimidate, or cause emotional distress to people. And violators can be uh, fined up to a year behind bars. And two thousand five hundred dollars in fines. Um, so, Jeffrey, I want to throw this to you mm-hmm. first. What, what, what exactly constitutes an image that can frighten, intimidate, or cause emotional distress to a person? And how do you determine that? 
Well, that's a good question. The other thing, when I first saw this story, was I, was, I, I checked the URL. I wasn't sure if I was on the Onion or not, because <laughs> um, this is this is just ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, it opens up those questions. Obviously, it's open to interpretation, as as a lot of lawmakers like to do to keep lawyers in, in business. Uh, the law needs to be interpreted. So, yeah, there's a huge. Um, you could gather as many people as you could think of, and they all would, all would have a different opinion about what's what's distressing. And I, I don't really see the point in this in this whole. This legislation, and the other thing I thought of that was also in the news this week, uh, if you saw uh, what the FDA is proposing for new cigarette packaging, no, uh, I didn't see that. Teams, so oh, that they actually want to crazy. Put, yeah, they want to put actual photographs on cigarette packaging of like a black lung. A <laughs> yeah, you are kidding me, really? No, I'm, this is crazy. Yeah. This and is best of all, act, one of them is actually like a dead person. on the cigarette packaging they're going to force the cigarette manufacturers to put (laughs) like someone with a hole in their throat or something on the packaging so i guess in tennessee the fda is going to get uh they're going to get fined and put in jail right exactly so the end of the fda in tennessee uh so when you combine these two stories that they're they're really at opposite ends of the the scale obviously so uh i I just can't see what clearly this guy has nothing else to do except to worry about um images and it's um you know i love that expression trying to herd cats it's like how are you going to control any of these images on the internet exactly not not only that but you know it seems like a huge burden on the legal system in tennessee so Derek's story is uh how do how would you uh determine if an image is going to cause your viewers emotional distress well i mean i wouldn't i mean i i i think this is a the story's crazy also and uh yeah it, because what happens is i mean as as a journalist the first thing i look at is you know this could be a tool to you know curb freedom of speech and reporting about oh, things that the government doesn't want uh, reported so you know right away i go no this this just can't go anywhere yeah and, and maybe they're trying to make the internet more pretty because i would say you know, pictures of ugly people frighten, intimidate, and cause me emotional distress. So maybe that's what they're trying to do. Filter yeah, I, out all the the, you know, the the aesthetically challenged people out of Tennessee. Uh, well, I mean, you, know, I, I, you, you could look at it as a political grandstanding. Maybe things are a little slow right now for him. Maybe he's, you know, popularity's down or something. You, you know, it could be because I will say this. These stories do resonate with a certain segment of the population. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so politically speaking, he, he may be getting some capital out of it. He probably, if he's a smart man at all, which I suspect that he is, uh, probably knows that this is going to go nowhere. So it could be just a good old fashioned political grandstand to get some attention. Yeah. Alex, is this is this a way for for Tennessee to fight back against like hate photographs that are showing up on the Web or 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 what? What do you think? I think it's a great opportunity for uh, for marketing. I'm very tempted. I looked at this and I was like, man, what we ought to do is take a picture of the governor and Photoshop it into like, you know, pictures that would be, uh, what is it? Um, you know, frightened, frightening, intimidating, intimidating. <laughs> get ourselves charged and just think about how much PR this weekend photography, you know, would we, just think how much we would get out of this because it would get thrown out immediately. You know, this is this is a blatant uh, crossover of the First Amendment. There is no way that this is going to go anywhere, um, and and I I just don't know if I have the money to pay for lawyers to take it to the take it take it for the round. Otherwise, I would actually do that because it would be great to get uh, to add all those all those listeners <laughs> because it's just this is just absurd and it's fine. It's it, you know it's an absurd law. Uh, the first, you know, ACLU will come in and do an amicus and they'll, you know, it'll all just get sorted out. So I don't think people should worry about it too much because this is just, you know, it's just useless. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, no one's ever gonna. No one's ever gonna go to jail. No one's ever gonna pay any fines. Oh, they might pay the fines because they don't have the money to take the lawyer. You know, whatever. But this is an ACL. This is this is on the ACLU um, uh, radar. I think immediately, and I'm sure that they're they're, they're happy to. Ju- they'll be happy to jump in and and uh, kick some butt in this area. I don't usually. I'm not a big usually a big ACLU fan, but this is what they were made for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean the other thing is this this for me this looks like the the whole pornography debate like what determines porn. You know, I'll know what, it when I see it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's <laughs> the same exact thing. And you know, I would challenge the Twip listeners to comment on this blog post or the blog post that's associated with this episode. Um, there's Facebook. There's a Facebook mechanism in there, so you can type a comment there or just use a regular blog commenting system. Let us know what you think. We want to hear what you think about this. Is it a good law or is it a bad law? Chime in and be heard. All right, the next story, uh, this one is, I got to say, it's amazing. I was sitting on the site playing around with it, and I got like 15 different people emailing me and, and DMing me on Twitter saying, have you seen this thing? This is a camera that lets you shoot first and focus later. So let me repeat that. You shoot an image first and then focus later. Uh, Derek's story, is it, <laughs> what do you think about this? Are you going to run out and get this when it's ready? Well, I, I mean, this could be the next big thing in photography, right? I mean, if they actually can bring it to market, uh, you know, which is they've, – they've been trying to do that for a while. But they have, they have a little bit of money. They got, what, $50 million. And uh, the thing is, uh, I, I played around with it also. You know, they have some sample shots. And what's amazing is he has a sample shot that has basically a shallow depth of field. One thing's in focus. Everything else is kind of out. And then all you do is take your mouse pointer. You know, this is a demo. All you do is take your mouse pointer, point on the area of the photo that you want in focus. That area becomes in focus and everything else, you know, kind of softens a bit. And you're right. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. The only thing that I was wondering about is that they said that they were going to bring it to a smaller camera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, smaller cameras tend to have pretty good depth of field. I mean, the shots that we play with have very shallow depth of field, obviously shot like with a DSLR and, you know, probably a longer lens, more or less wide open. So the the effect is real dramatic. Uh, I thought what could be interesting, though, for uh, point-and-shoot cameras that already have a pretty good depth of field just inherently because of the sensor versus optics uh, equation there is that if you just miss on something especially you know your daughter's face in a birthday party shot where she's blown out the candles and the camera just focuses somewhere else and you have the opportunity to to bring that face into focus even if it just improves it a little bit that's a pretty big deal mm-hmm. and uh i i think it's interesting i, I i'm watching this story closely so, uh, Alex, I wanted to throw it to you. So, you, I, I know you're familiar with this and probably geeking out on it. What does this mean if this is real and, and the demos on their website, which we'll link to, the demos on their website are indicative of what it can actually do? How does this change your world? Well, I, I think that it's, I think we're kind of moving towards this, uh, this world 10 years from now where, you know, your camera in some ways becomes this, you know, it proves that you were there, but you know the end result is so different than whatever you shot, uh, and it's just hard for people. To, I think some people to get their head around that. I mean, so you're talking about high dynamic range, and you're talking about being able to refocus, and and eventually you will talk about when you start gra- gathering all this information. Uh, we're you know there are there is technologies out there for you to essentially relight the photo to some degree, 
you know, from these, um, you know, because um, once it figures out what's going on, uh, you know, that's not too far out, out the path. So you're talking about, you know, the camera is something there that just gathers the, all of that information for you. And then you're going to go back into your, um, you go back into your lab and, and come out with something else. Now, we've always done that to some degree. You know, when we're dodging and burning, even, you know, by putting, you know, when I grew up, I was, you know, dodging and burning was, you know, using uh, mats and my hands and stuff like that to change the photo that I shot. Mm-hmm. You know, I shot it and I'm sitting there in a dark room and I t- expose it and I'm putting my hands over things or I'm using little mats to cover things up. And mm-hmm. so we've been manipulating this for a long time. This is just another progression of that process. And um, but you're you know, we are going towards this brave new world where you are uh, essentially taking a photo that that may not look anything like what you're what the end product's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that post becomes, you know, more and more important. And of course, people will will be um, uh, horrified by it. Some people will be horrified by it. And well, how, how does this technology work, though, Alex? You know, you, you look at it, and a lot of people are like, that's impossible. You know, is well, it just not, yeah, turn it's, out, you know, what, what is that? What exactly is it doing? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not the person that can probably say exactly what it's doing. Roughly. But, but essentially what's happening is, is you're getting a bunch of uh, information. So you're, rather than a single point of information, um, there's a, it's, I'm not going to say that it's like it. I'm going to try to use this as a metaphor, um, is that... Uh, essentially, when you um, what you need to know is roughly where the pixels are in 3D or where the image is in 3D, uh, where things are. And so by getting more information, it has more sensors able to grab more information. So when we want to get build like a 3D model of an object, um, we can, as long as we get more than one angle of, of, a, of a given object, um, you know, so three or four different angles of that object, we can actually build, rebuild it in, rebuild a 3D version of it. Um, just from the photographs, and so in some ways, this is a very mu- a much more automatic, much more powerful version of that of that process. Um, and we've been getting to a point where we've been able to build, you know, build a um, point clouds that that represent all of this 3D information and so on and so forth. And so, so these are all things that have been you know kind of coming down the path. This is a much more robust version of that. But what it's doing is it's basically using other sensors within the camera to, you know, gather a lot more information, figure out what's going on in that scene, um, rather than, you know, in by doing that, it can figure out where the light is actually bouncing, where the, you know, where those pieces are going. And, uh, and it's something that, again, we should, we could probably do a whole episode on how this thing works. Uh, yeah. they, they, Maybe I we mean, should. They, they do it every week on the episode of Bones, right? So that's... <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You so, know. Jeffrey, on, mm-hmm. on your side, on the, the pro-pro side, you know, with doing architectural photography, I kind of have this vision in my head of you setting up a tripod, you got assistants everywhere, tweaking, you know, different pieces of the image, hiding lights and getting everything just right, and then, you you know, you start taking pictures. D- how does this change your world? I mean, does it does this mean that you can be less meticulous about capturing the image and do a lot of stuff later, or does it even matter to you? Well, I think um, well, two things. I, I, it'd certainly be great not to have to worry about focus. You know, that's uh, that, that's something that's um, uh, still relatively easy easy to do in the medium format uh, cameras. But it, it'd be nice not to have to worry about it and to be able to selectively place your focus where you like it. You know, back in the four by five. Film days, um, we had to use even more uh, camera movements in order to get you know, add a little bit of a tilt to bring a table and focus in the foreground. But then you lose the upper corner of the ceiling, all these things. So, but I don't, I'm not sure it would translate necessarily to medium format. Here, here's how I suspect it works. Um, f- former engineer speaking here, um, I, I think it might be combining perhaps the technology in the Xbox new controller with the sort of depth camera. 
sort of what Alex was talking about. And then, but I, I suspect it would also have to have a really small chip. And I'm not sure if it does. I'm just speculating it, because we know when the chip gets smaller, then the, the lens, um, has almost infinite depth of field. And I'm wondering if it's almost just capturing infinite depth of field combined with the depth camera to say what's in front of the camera and what's far from the camera. And then basically just adding, uh, I imagine that the software is actually blurring the picture and then allowing you to selectively place things in focus. Hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering, I don't know if that would scale up to, um, for instance, to medium format. Um, but again, it's just speculation on my part. And I wonder if it lets you, uh, if you think of doing a shot with like a, like maybe like the, uh, like a 0.95 Noctilux 50 millimeter lens, which has, you know, depth of field of a, of a human hair, um, versus shooting something at like F11 or F16. If you can, if there's some sliding scale where you could say, I want a little more depth of field or less depth of field in this, in this technology. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see where it goes. Um, I'm just not sure how scalable this, if uh, if my assumptions are right. Well, at the very least, this is something we will definitely keep our eyes on, um, and you know, and possibly purchase in the future. Sure. Um, story, this next story uh, is about Google. So Google has rolled out a service that allows you to upload an image, um, and then it will look for other images on the web that are similar. Um, or exact matches to it. So it's kind of like TenEye that we talked about on the show before or PicScout so that you can police the web yourself to see if, you know, where your images are showing up. Alex, do you, you know, your, your, your feet are firmly in the video side of the world. Does this affect you at all? You know, I, I don't really, um, no, it doesn't affect me that much. I don't really put a lot of my photos. <laughs> you have to think about think that. Cool. No, not really. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's cool, and I think it'll be great for a lot of photographers. I don't put up a lot of my photos at a resolution, and I don't put up a lot of my photos in general if I'm uh, if, if I'm worried about copyright. Um, you know, I have massive collections of stuff. I just don't put a lot of them on Flickr. I don't put a lot of them, and, and it's not that I don't try to protect them in, when I put them up there, but. I don't spend a lot of time, um, you know, really doodling about with that. Um, it's just not, it's not part of my, uh, uh, really my, my revenue stream, my, my income stream. So it's not something that I, that I really think about that much. Um, what I really am excited about is the idea. What I really want out of this is not so much to find out where my photos are, but find out where the photo that I'm looking at was shot. So, you know, to me, what I'm interested in is them taking this one step further and, and take a look at a picture of it. And I go, where, where was that photo? Or where is that person who shot that photo? And being able to grab the information that's in there and reverse engineer it and tell me that it was, you know, near the, you know, near something in Paris or near something in, you know, wherever by looking at all the photos that are around it, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, or, or using the same relative technology to figure that out. Um, anyway, that's the stuff that I'm, that I think is cool. And I think is probably an, an extension of this. Um, but I think the other guys are probably more sensitive to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Derek? Yeah. I, I mean, this is a great week in photography, right? I mean, there's so much interesting stuff going on. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I like it for a little bit of a different reason, and, and I played with it and was very impressed. But not so much uh, enforcing, you know, misuse of my photos. I. When I put stuff up on the web, I, you know, I want them to be shared, and, and most of my stuff is Creative Commons anyway. Not all of it, but most of it. What I want to know is, you know, who who is using my stuff in in a, like a positive way? Like, wow, these guys use one of my photos for the story, and that's kind of cool, and 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 allows me to to see the different connections that are happening, and uh, I think that's fascinating. And uh, I, I ran a, a, a number of photos through it, and. I, I just thought it was uh, is, is a terrific, useful tool for me because it helps me understand kind of the you know the social network side of my job. 
Yeah. Now, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, are you again, you know, larger images and you don't you don't necessarily share a lot of your stuff online that could be pilfered and show up in other places because Google rolled out the service. Does that add a different dimension to how you're going to manage and keep up with your the shots that you do? Yeah, I think it definitely does because um, a little bit like what Derek was saying, you, you, it'd be nice to find uh, where your images are being used. I, I have a standing, like most people do, a standing Google search for my name. So I do mm-hmm. see if somebody credits one of my photos, I do see where it pops up. And in the architectural world, uh, there uh, are a lot of these uh, architectural blogs, and we as photographers don't necessarily get paid to participate in them, but the images end up there through either directly from the architect or some of the blogs are just plain aggregators. And so it, it's fun to see where the images end up. But now I'm only able to find them if someone credits me. And, and unfortunately, sometimes they don't get credited. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely start using it for some of the higher profile projects to see if they end up somewhere. Because what I like to do with that is take, um, you know, take a link to, to whatever use there was and, and you know, stick it out on Twitter. And it's just fun to, to have your, your work show up somewhere. Yeah. But I, I thought also, because I'm, I'm also a... Um, a uh, member of uh, ASMP, uh, American Society of Media Photographers, and they they fought for a long time against this um, Orphan Works legislation. If you guys are familiar with this, this, oh, yeah. this was this was where uh, if if a, if a, say a photograph, uh, you know, oftentimes photographs have their metadata stripped out of them one way or another. Uh, even Photoshop was doing that for a while, but that's been corrected partly through ASMP. And so, if you had a photograph and you're trying to credit it or use it, maybe you want to put it in a book or on a website, and you're trying to figure out who owns it, and you know, you look in the the file info and you can't find a, a photographer's name, then, you know, some people just assume it's orphan works cause it's not credited. So now I think this would be a good way to sort of work against orphan works and saying that, um, you could just drop it into this Google search and see where it pops up. And hopefully the photographer's name will show up somewhere adjacent to one of the search results. I think it also, so, but I think the one thing that you know to keep in mind is that actually maybe in, it may be improving the possibility of doing orphan works because, um, part of the argument against orphan works is it's hard to find the photo. You know, um, if the photo becomes really easy to find, uh, you may end up with a you know legal argument that well, people should know better. You know, they should be able to go out and it's very easy now for them to go find their photos. Yeah, there's no excuse to call it an orphan anymore. Yep, yep. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that's the other side of it. Yeah. yeah, and then there's one other thing that I really like, which is the similar images is is a lot of fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like oh yeah, <laughs> gee, I thought I was being so original there. Yeah, exactly like yours. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what about the other side of this? There's, like I mentioned at the beginning, there's services out there like Tenai and PicScout that are doing this. Are they? Uh, should they hang it up now that Google has thrown its hat in the ring? Alex, uh, not yet. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I think that you know Google has a tendency to sometimes start things that don't turn out as well as they thought and wasn't totally worked <laughs> out. I mean, it's it's kind of a, everything in Google is like a work in progress, and some Wave. stuff works and some stuff doesn't. I think that just because they rolled it out doesn't mean it's going to be successful from a Google perspective. Um, and so, I mean, we've seen them in this last week kill a couple projects, you know, their energy project and a couple other ones. And so, so the, um, uh, so, you know, I, I, if I were them, I wouldn't be losing any sleep just yet. Uh, I would be looking at what, what competitive uh, advantage that they have and make sure that they're leveraging that. Yeah, they kind of remind me in some ways, in some of the markets they get into, they dominate it. In other ways, they're like the 300-pound drunk gorilla that gets in there and just sort of lumbers yeah. around, you know, and then leaves. I will, I always think of them as a big, you know, like grab onto it and I will hug you and I will squeeze you and I will, you know, and, and uh, 
awesome. so anyway, but I, but I think that, you know, they're, I mean, Google obviously has changed everybody's life and does a lot of great things. And we're sitting here talking about a show, you know, talking about this, looking at Google Docs. So it's, you know, um, but I, but, you know, I, when they just release something, I wouldn't, I think it's a mistake. I, I see a lot of people in business see someone big move into something and think immediately that their business model is over. And I've, and, and, uh, and it's, Oftentimes, not the case. A small company may have a unique way of looking at it, um, and I and and they just need to look at what Google's doing and make sure that they're doing something that is distinct and better. Yeah, for somebody. Does, does not for everyone, just for someone. Does Ten I offer some sort of service? I was wondering if Google may do this too, where where you could just have some sort of web bot go out there and search for a pile of images that you that you select and throw into a folder. Does Ten I do that sort of thing? I'm not sure. Like a persistent search that you could just yeah. say, you know, keep keep your eye on the web for these these shots. Right. Kind of like a standing Google search for your name or your business company or name or something. Yeah. If, um, if you could point it to a folder full of images, like all your recent works or something. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if they do or not. I yeah. Know. That bears some investigation, or mm-hmm. asking the TWIP army if they, uh, you know, if they know about that. Um, the next story is um, the race to be the smallest. So Sony uh, has unveiled a number of new cameras um, with various alphabet soup names, um, and one of them, the NEXC3, is apparently the world's smallest APS-C interchangeable lens camera at 16.2 megapixels. Um, this is pretty cool. I mean, it's supposed to be available available in August for just six hundred dollars with a sixteen mil lens, or six fifty with an eighteen to fifty five. Have you seen this, Derek? I know you're the, you're the gearhead of the crowd, and you like all this stuff. One of the gearheads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this is an area that I follow. I I love the micro four thirds and. Uh, and the the Sony cameras and all this sort of stuff. And so, yes, I have been following it and. The thing that you were probably going to mention then, Pentax through their hat yep. and ring with yep. the, the Q. Yep. Uh, a little bit of a, a of a different shake on it. But I think what's going to happen is uh, Pentax is going to be able to say they're the the smallest ILC and Sony's going to say, well, we're the we're the smallest with the APS-C sensor. And then Panasonic or Olympus is going to be able to say we're the smallest with a micro four thirds sensor. And, you know, so it, it'll kind of go down that road. But uh, for some reason, they're all kind of into having now a, a small ILC camera, small interchangeable lens camera. And it, it seems to be one of the things that they've all decided they're going to compete on. And it's, it's fun to watch. For me, there's a, just personally, there's some diminishing returns on this. I, I like a little something to hold on to, especially if it costs, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars. Uh, I don't want it to slip out of my hands. So I, you know, smaller for me isn't, in certain areas of camera isn't always the most important thing but you know you know how they are they 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 love getting on these little these little jags where they're competing on something yeah yeah mm. you got to keep it fresh you yeah it fresh. you know uh, jeffrey are you, uh, mm-hmm. are you are you in the market for the world's smallest camera <laughs> or are you, are you going the opposite direction well that's good i mean I certainly um need need smaller cameras for scouting and for travel and such um i was interested to see this um Camera because I, I do like smaller cameras for a variety of reasons, but I was wondering why you know the, what what is this new race uh, in terms of scale? And I was thinking that it must have a lot to do with um, you know m- mostly the consumer market. People are used to taking pictures with their cell phones, and so this is you know people, they just want to get a small camera in people's hands, so they're still likely to buy a camera versus relying on their cell phone. But um, from what I was reading, I, I don't think the quality expectations of these images are not going to be great, even though it's a 16, is it 16 megapixel? Yeah. Um, 
chip um, for what I believe is close to one Alex. Is that is that right, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> under one Alex. <laughs> Just under one Alex. So, um, and you know, in terms of the small cameras, I um, I take my luxury my luxury car out, uh, and that would be my uh, my Leica M9, which uh, is probably not a lot bigger than than these cameras, and um, renders a beautiful image and is a full frame thirty five millimeter chip. So um, that's what I like for a small camera. But um, so it'd be you know interesting. Did I read that the this also has a touch interface on the back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah that's, that's another trend we're seeing is uh, the touch yeah. screens. You know, it's I'm, interesting. Just to, to kind of add on to what Jeffrey's saying, uh, there was another little piece of news this week. I don't know if everyone caught it, but um, the iPhone four took over as the most popular camera on Flickr. It, oh it, wow! It uh, unseated. I thought it had done that before. Well, no, no. Yeah, it unseated uh, the D ninety, and uh, wow. so so you know you know the, these guys here that are making the micro four thirds and the the small ILC cameras. They're they're looking at this this changing this changing marketplace, and uh, I think that does have something to do with it. Yeah. Wow. I'd That's like crazy. to see a, 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 a consumer market camera. I know there's these uh, I, the iFi cards that can, mm-hmm. uh, at least they can transfer images directly to a to a local network computer or something. But have, have they perfected the technology that you just post them up online? Like if you combine the touch interface on a small camera with the ability just to stick it up online immediately, I think, you know, that'd be a lot of fun. Then you could take, um, then it's sort of worth dragging around an interchangeable lens camera because you, you, you combine the, the convenience of the cell phone. Uh, you know, I love doing that when I'm in another city. I might do a little, um, uh, little panoramic photo and stick it up on Twitter or something uh, with the iPhone. Uh, but I do that mostly because you can, because it's easy. Yeah. So it'd be fun to see if some of these higher quality cameras will be able to have that. I, I think the key word, Jeffrey, is perfected. <laughs> right. Yeah. I want to I mean, get Alex's you, take you, on this. You, thing can, you can do it right now uh, with some of these devices like an iFi card. Yeah. But I have to admit... Uh, and I play with this stuff all the time. It's not as easy as with my iPhone, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's not as easy. Well, and, soon and you'll be buying a thing. soon you'll be buying a, a cell phone plan for your camera. Well, you, <laughs> you know, know, I'm okay with that. I would yeah, love to too. do that. Yeah, yeah well, I, I think that for me, I, I, um, I you will lose general, this camera. That's what you do. <laughs> I would no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use this camera. You know, the, the, here's the thing: is that if I can't fit it in my pocket, it's my. I just want an SLR. You know, if yeah. I'm if I'm if I have to hang it out. So as soon as you know, I, you know, I, I really interchangeable lenses are important to me. Um, but I feel like once I get, once it's not hanging, once it's not fitting in a jeans pocket, it's too big, and now it's something else. You know, and and um, I I have to admit, I'm I'm really mostly iPhone. You know, an iPhone. I shoot a lot of pictures on iPhones, um, and uh, but I, either I'm using an iPhone or I'm using my 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 uh, SLR. Uh, those are the two that I do most of. All the other cameras that I get that are smaller cameras tend to be specialty cameras. So I have a Fuji W3 for shooting 3D, which I think is a lot of fun, and I have Ricoh R10s that are great at stop mode or at great at um, time lapse, and I have. Um, you know, that I use for like doing behind the scenes of building uh, sets up and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then I'm thinking about getting a Casio because I want to do high speed. You know, you know like, like, I, like all of those, I'm looking at, at what those special little things that they do um, are, and that's why I buy them. Now, I don't think that's for everyone, but I do think when I look at um, the average person out there, I think that 
if you're buying a point and shoot, I think it's going to be a harder and harder decision to do that over your iPhone. I think it's a really hard place for all of these guys to be. And I think, I think they have to do these interchangeable lenses. They have to find something that gives someone a reason to buy smaller cameras because um, point and shoot, I think, is, a, is a, becoming a less and less tenable place for a, for a company to be. Yeah. And the yeah. one thing that I just want to add on to that, and uh, I, I do think that they are uh, bringing some intelligence to this, uh, because another trend that we're seeing with these smaller ILC cameras that we're calling is that now we're starting to see the really nice prime lenses uh, come into play. So, you know, they started out with the little zooms that weren't very interesting to me because, uh, you know, the minimum aperture was not or the maximum aperture was not very big. But now that uh, we're starting to see, you know, lenses come in at F1.8, F1.4, F2, that we can put on these small cameras that allow me to do the kind of photography I like to do in a, in a smaller package. Okay, so that, you know, now someone that's a, a business traveler or, or, or someone that's a serious vacation or whatever, now they have a little something smaller and they can do serious photography. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but it's fun to watch. Yeah, it is. I mean, and this stuff is picking up the pace, though. I mean, like over it the is, last like know. two years, three years. It, you remember, like Alex, you remember two years ago what we were talking about? We were just, you know, I think it was the the raw versus JPEG argument, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, version twenty eight of the yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now look at all this magic stuff that's just yeah. that just keeps showing up, and it, it doesn't seem to be slowing down. It's amazing. Well, the, the, that's the thing I was sort of commenting on earlier that the the stories right now that we have that that we're just reading with our morning coffee or in, in the world of photography and imaging and video. Very interesting. I mean, it's it's this is a, a great time. Yeah, yeah, it is exciting. All right, this last story that I want to chat about is about um, a MIT study that reveals what makes a photograph memorable. Now, Derek, it, don't we know that inherently as photographers, like what that is, or does it need a study from MIT to reveal that? <laughs> it's funny. I, I actually have a, a little just a very brief story to tell with that. And I just went through this whole thinning process where, you know, I was lugging around all these prints and negatives over the, that I've accumulated over the years. And it was just, I was taking, they were taking up too much space. And I decided I had to thin them out. You know, I had to go Brent Weston here. <laughs> and so um, what I did was I actually did that. And it was interesting. The, the images that I kept from specific eras, you know, especially like more than 20 years old, Tend, tended to be the shots of people that uh, that I cared about or just people in general. And a lot of my stuff that was like my fine art when I was, you know, in my certain, in my blue period, uh, just went by the wayside. I just I wasn't interested in it at all. A lot of landscape went out the door, all that. And what I ended up keeping when I went through this thinning process, 80% of it was people shots. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to agree. You know, it's the it's the shots of people because because people are always changing, right? So you, yeah. you get them at one point in time. Tomorrow they may be completely different. Yeah. Now you know that really good fine art landscape shot or architecture shot that I did. Obviously, I kept that, but but the the percentage of that was smaller, and the things that really resonated with me usually had a person in it. Now, Jeffrey, what about you? Most of your shots do not have people in them, right? right? <laughs> so, what makes an architectural shot memorable? 
Well, I think that that's interesting. Uh, I've, I've always said because I you know, definitely tend to shoot more landscapes and buildings and people less uh, photos. And I always think as a photographer, that's always a challenge to make a compelling image that doesn't have a person in it. Uh, and so that's sort of my, my goal when I'm taking a photo, but you know, my, my brain works in a very geometric way. So I'm, I, I tend to remember patterns and, and shapes and things, um, maybe more than, than most people. But I think this MIT story is interesting because it just takes them to, to prove to us that, that I think what our, our suspicions were to begin with, because you take, a I, I think it's, it's pretty well proven whether by this story or others that the human eye, uh, if you show somebody a picture, will always go to the, if there's a person's face in a picture, we'll always go to that first. Even if there's all kinds of other stuff, they always sort of search out the, um, the person in the shot. And then we think about the work I do with architectural photography. Uh, the people we do include in our photographs uh, often aren't terribly close to the camera. And I often try and blur them one way or another, um, typically just have them moving through. Because I think if you, if you take that really recognizable face out and blur it a little bit, then the eye has a chance to move past the person because I know that the, the human eye is going to going to the human brains really want to go go to the person's face first. And I'm trying to get them to go elsewhere in the picture first and let the, the, the figure in the shot just be um, texture and scale uh, for the photo. So that's one thing we do. Sometimes clients want to pick people up like really up front in the shot and they say, well, it's gonna, really going to be a picture of them, not the space. Yeah. So that's um that, that's how we try and work with people. And I do enjoy having people in the shots because I think it does it, it humanizes the space more. And, uh, so whenever we can do it, we, we like to do it, um, as long as it's not distracting, I guess, yeah. Said, yeah, whether it's what the person's wearing or, um, you know, if they're too blurry or too close or there's too many people, uh, would, would, and, and Alex, I'll throw to you on the video side, when you're dealing with that, the dimension of motion and sound, um, which, you know, completely different from a still photographer or a still photograph, um, what what makes a shot like that memorable, you know, other than, okay, it's composed properly, it's lit properly, so it's technically right. How do you make a shot, you know, that's technically right on the left better than a shot that's technically technically right on the on the right side? Um I, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's still one of those things that, you, you know, it's whatever you have in there. I mean, one of the things you play around a lot with with any of these things is the, you know, whether it's I don't think that the video rules and the photography rules are that much different. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. obviously, you're going to pay attention to what's moving. I mean, that's going to be the first thing you're paying attention to. You're also going to pay attention to depth of field. Um, you know, filmmakers use that all the time. In fact, one of the things you can really tell is, is how much they're, you know, they want to manipulate and make sure that when they're telling a story, it's even more important in a film, when they're telling a story, they want to make sure that you're only listening to them talk. You don't, they don't want, want you to listen to the background. They already showed you what the background is in an establishing shot. Now they want you to pay attention to the dialogue. And so they're going to they're gonna use that short depth of field to cut everything out. And so, and, um, and so, you know, shortening that depth of field or only including those pieces. Now, if they want you to see something, then, then you're going to, um, you know, that's, that's when they're going to set you up with that. But, it's, um, but I think that a lot of times I think when you don't know what to look at in a film, when you're at an IMAX or you're at a feature film and you don't know what you should be looking at and your eyes are going all over the place, uh, if it happens more often other than an establishing shot when they're kind of showing you that whole piece, um, that, in my opinion, is a failure on the filmmaker's part, on the director and DP's part to um, decide what they're going to have you do and make sure that they set that up so that the, um, so that the, uh, the, the action lines, uh, the vanishing points, the depth of field, um, and the framing all kind of guide your eyes to where they want to put you. I mean, that's where a master, you know, DP and, and director, that's, where they, that's, what they, that's what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's, that's, that's telling that story, and it's a whole different story based on what you're looking at. Yeah. 
All right, guys, let's move on. Um, I want to jump into the picks of the week right now. This is a, this is the time of the show where each guest gives a pick, and that pick can be software, hardware, gear, a workshop, as long as it's photography-related. And, Alex, since you're on a roll, I want to give it to you first. What's your pick of the week? So my pick of the week is a – I just got this, and, um, you know, it's it was uh, sent to me as a test, and I just, I'm just really starting to fall in love with it. It's called a gimbal. Have you guys seen this gimbal? No. What is so it? this is a tiny little tripod. It is the highest-end – iPhone tripod I've ever seen in my entire life. So, <laughs> um, so if, if you, you know, we were just talking about shooting on, on an iPhone. One of the problems is, is that you want to have a, um, you want to have a good solid, uh, you know, something to, to actually, um, you know, use your tripod with a, a solid tripod, you know, something, you know, you're going to, you take your iPhone, you need to set it down somewhere. You don't want to deal with a lot of like attaching it to something, moving stuff around. And, uh, and I, before this, I had that little uh, glyph, you guys have, and I still have it. It's, mm-hmm. Those are cool, uh, which are awesome, and and you should have one of those too. Um, but the gimbal is just a really nice machined, um, you know, very well put together uh, tripod, and it's tiny. So what what happens is you can put it in your pocket. I mean, I put it in my. I have a Scotty vest, and one of my pockets is like my has become my gimbal pocket. And so, it, and um, they have a they have a consumer version, which is about ninety nine dollars. I I don't know if that's really. I think it might be a little overpriced at ninety nine dollars, mm-hmm. but they have a pro version. It's black. So number one is it's black. I mean, that says pro. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> but it's also, one of the other things is, is that it's, it, um, it comes with two different pieces. Uh, one piece that is like a standalone tripod and one that's just a head. It's got a quarter 20 screw on the bottom of it. So if you want to throw this on a real tripod, if you want to throw your iPhone on a real tripod, um, it's got, you can just screw this in and then slide your iPhone in. Now, now what it's really, you know, you can use it for any kind of photography you want. The case that comes with it, so they, they make a case for your iPhone that comes with it. It is the best case I have ever. I've I've gotten more comments on this case than I've ever had, and I and I just love the hard case that comes with it. But what it does is it gives you this little slide, so you always have something attached to your phone that you can simply slide into the into the attachment, and bam, you've got a your phone is ready to to shoot. You can put it on the tripod. It also the when the way that it attaches. It sets your um, it sets your lens of your iPhone right over top of the rotation axis. Oh, nice! And yeah, so, over the so, nodal point, right? Yeah. So if you want to shoot over your, uh, it's right over the nodal point. And so what happens is if you want to shoot a, a panorama, either just one that's a cylinder or even a, even a, the way it's set up, you can even if you turn it upright, you can actually it, it rotates, and so you can do a you know do it and actually get a full three sixty around and want, you know up and down and everything. Um, you know, out of this guy and it's just, and it really feels solid. Like when you pull it, when you, when you, when you play with this thing, it's not, this wasn't just kind of thrown together. Now it's $149. It's not that it's, it's super cheap, but it is the best tripod that I've ever seen for an iPhone. And I shoot a lot with it. And it's just something that I have both of these things in my pocket while I'm working. I'm not taking my SLR, but I want to grab, I love shooting panoramas. And the problem is you can shoot. I use auto stitch a lot and I use Photosynth. Those are the two that I use the most as far as software goes. And the problem with any of that is that if you're hand holding it, it's just really hard to stay. If, if you're if you're in a wide open area, no one will notice that there's a little bit of stitching problems. But if you are in a um, in in your house or in, in a closed environment, that's when any change to that nodal point is going to show up as tears or rips or, or things that aren't working. Um, and so. Uh, this helps to make sure that you're really on that nodal point and uh, rotating around as well. And you don't, if you're not going to do any panoramas, it just works as a great little weight. This, the the um, the secondary piece that comes with the pro version yeah. is tiny. You can fit it in your you know uh, in your shirt pocket. 
uh, or in your pants pocket, and, and it's just a quick attachment to your tripod. You can leave it on the end of your tripod, for that matter, and then just quickly attach your phone if you want to use it. And so, um, you know, I think that, as I said, the, 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 uh, the pro version, I just think, uh, for our listeners, is just a great, um, you know, a great little tripod that, that uh, I'm, I'm becoming very attached to very quickly. So, again, every, every time you give your pick, I get, I have, I'm writing stuff down. And I have to go buy it. Every single time. <laughs> you, yeah, so, so anyway, uh, you know, and so I, I would highly suggest it. It's called the Gimbal, and it's spelled. It's got a funky spelling. It's it's uh, uh, G Y M B L. Yeah, uh, we'll link to it from the show notes yep. too. So. Yeah, looks great. I won't have to bother bringing mine to market now. Uh oh, <laughs> Jeffrey. Jeffrey, what's your pick? Uh, I I just recently discovered a um, a nice. Uh, it's a Lightroom uh, plugin, and I I didn't use Lightroom until about two weeks ago. Uh, because of this plugin, and in, in my work, we do um, uh, you know the camera's always on a tripod, and we're doing multiple uh, ma- you know many exposures, bracketing a lot of exposures to bring in detail in the windows and detail in light fixtures and and that sort of thing. And you know, I, I played for anytime some new HDR program came out, I always play with it, but it, most of them are just terrible for really trying to do nice clean architectural images because uh, they the hdr tends to shift the color too much and you lose a lot in the black and things get a little cartoony yeah. so i found this um this plugin it's, it's called lightroom infuse e-n-f-u-s-e it's available on the photographer's uh toolbox uh website it's by uh timothy armors and it, it works very quickly uh you just uh drag uh I just drag images right from bridge uh, onto the uh, Lightroom icon in the dock and import them. And a couple clicks later, it's already doing its thing. So you can work with two images or five images or however many you have. And it doesn't do it perfectly, but it, it does, I'd say it gets you 50 to 75% there. Like if you're trying to bring in detail in some windows, uh, for instance, uh, you may still have to do some path cutting, which is the typical way I do it um, without any of these plugins. But this one works well. It preserves the color. Uh, it preserves the blacks for the most part. And uh, so it's a, it, it really works well. I'm surprised it works so well. Uh, and so I, I hope they continue to, to support it because I think it's actually like shareware. You're just asked to make a donation uh, for it. Wow. And so that, that, that's been working great. And if I could, I want to just add one, one other sort sure. of fun one. Yeah, um, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't travel a ton for my, for my work, but we do travel. And I'm always worried about, you know, backing things up when we're on location and I always have at least one, you know, you know, portable hard drive with me. But then I'm always like taking that big hard drive and stuffing it in my pocket because I'm afraid, you know, traveling through the airport or wherever that, you know, maybe the computer bag will get lost or who knows what will happen. So I was always looking for a USB uh, drive to carry around. But I always thought, you know, sticking it in your pocket always gets full of lint and whatever. And so I found that uh, Lassie makes this thing called the Extreme Key, which is. Uh, I love great. it. Yeah, it's pretty ludicrous, but <laughs> it's two millimeter thick uh, aluminum case that the USB drive uh, actually screws into. Hmm. And look, looking on their website, it can um, it can survive uh, being run over by a ten ton truck. It can go to it's waterproof to a uh, hundred meters. It can uh, go through huge temperature extremes, not to mention just everyday knocking around. So it's a pretty indestructible uh, USB drive, which is nice. And I got the. 32 gig one, which is like uh, maybe 120 bucks or something. So it's just another because um, you you think well you're backing up against computer failure, but you also have to back up against physical loss yep. uh, when you're traveling. So because you might um, yeah you might lose, lose lose something along the way. I, I, I love those two, Jeffrey. And but mm-hmm. the only thing that crossed my mind when I was reading on the thing, uh, you know, that is if it's in my pocket and it gets run over by a ten ton truck, <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> you got bigger problems. 
Or you get, eat, you get eaten by an alligator. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we'll, we'll get some great photos if we just wait 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, right. That's awesome. Yeah, he's probably Those will be out in a minute. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. Derek, Derek what's your pick? Uh, I actually got uh, turned on to this week's pick through my uh, work as a low-pro photography evangelist. And I, you know, I get to try stuff out. And uh, so this is it's called the Low Pro Pro Roller Attaché X50. And the reason why I'm, just, I'm talking, I never talk about bags on the show, but I, the reason why I'm talking about this bag is because it solves a, a real problem for me when I'm just going to be gone for a couple nights, and uh, I need my I need my photography kit, and I need a couple changes of clothes, and I just want to have it fit in the overhand been on any airplane because we all know how much fun flying is these days mm-hmm. and uh so it's actually two bags in one so the the camera bag uh you know pulls out of the this little roller that fits anywhere and uh you fill it up and it's got a trolley sleeve and it goes over the handle that extends up and then you put your clothes in you know in the main in the main bag so you got a little a little roller bag and then you got a camera bag that sits on top and uh, so then you, know, you travel like that. And then when you get to wherever you're going, uh, you just pull your clothes out, put them in the hotel drawer or whatever. And then that camera bag actually fits into the roller bag in a specific way that has like a drop drawer. So then when you want to shoot, you just stop, you just uh, unzip uh, the front part of the bag, and it just drops open, uh, you know, enough to get your gear out, and you just work out of this thing. You just work out of this thing, and uh, and then you know when you're when you're ready to fly out again, you pull the camera bag out, put it over your shoulder or whatever, and put your clothes back in, and it's just made uh, short trips for me so easy, and I just really have fallen in love with this bag. And then it has one other cool thing: the handle extends up. It has a has a tripod screw. That's uh, hidden in Get it. Get out of here. That's the tripod <laughs> screws it. And uh, I don't use it for cameras much. You can. But what I really use it for is supplemental lighting. So that when I'm on, when I'm on the gig, uh, then I just position, because my roller bag you know, has all the gear in it anyway, I just position it, put a, a flash on top of it, and use it for a fill light. Wow. That's pretty that's wild. Cool. It's, a, it's, it's a cool little bag. I, I really enjoy it a lot. Awesome. When did, when did that come out, Derek? You know, it came out, actually, it was announced at Photokina uh, back in, uh, what was that, September last year? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it took a while to get, you know, in, into all the retail. So it, it really hasn't been out that long right now. Wow, very cool. Is this the X50? Or did you say yeah, one? the X50. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it's it's. This is the most expensive part of the show for the for the uh, hosts as well. Just <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking. Y'all, we oh, all like, are you kidding all of me? Us are like taking notes, going, I need to buy that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I so agree with that. Awesome, Alex man. has cost me a lot of money over the years. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. All right, guys. My my pick, real quick, is uh, I think I may have mentioned this maybe a year or so ago, but I'm going to mention them again because they've made some really good strides in their software. It's a company called Slideshow Pro. And they create some really gorgeous slideshow software for photographers, obviously, that allow you to basically, in a nutshell, you can install this on your on your server. And it's almost like a YouTube where you can, on the back end, you configure all your different slideshows and apply rules. Like you could say, during the Christmas season, from this date to this date, show this particular gallery and... You know, if I upload something and it's tagged with this keyword, make it the first image you show on all my galleries, different things like that. So you have this control on the background. But then in the foreground, you can publish these slideshows 
out to multiple sites, kind of like YouTube. So you embed mm. this code wherever you want your slideshow to show up and you control it from the backside. So you can embed it in your blog and then say, okay, on my blog, I want to show this set of images and you embed another one on your retail site and you, you're kind of controlling them from the back end, like the big wizard behind the camera or behind the curtain. That's very clever. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. they're, they're iOS friendly. So the, the software or the embed, the embedded software, um, intelligently detects what's viewing it and will deliver a completely different version with optimized images for whatever device it's on. So it's not just like it's okay. It, it will show up on an iPhone. It delivers iPhone optimized images specifically for the iPhone when it sees that an iPhone is viewing the images and the same for the iPad and for your computer and all that stuff. So it's really, really powerful. And we'll, uh, we'll link over to it from the, from the show notes. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah. It's good really try. Cool. Sounds great. All right. All right, guys. We, we made it through. We're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. We made it. Made it through the storm. Alex, Lots of content today. Huh? I mean, this is chock mm-hmm. full. Yeah. Chock <laughs> full. This was a busy week in photography. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we'd, all, we'd like to thank all the companies and uh, news organizations that have made this show possible by doing something actually useful this week. Exactly. Boy, I second that. I say I thank all these companies for making my life interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's a fun time to be a photographer. I say that all the time, but it Absolutely. definitely is. Um, Alex Lindsay, where, where are you at on the ether? Uh, it's best to follow me on Twitter. Uh, here's the thing: is a lot of people, and we did this live broadcast, and people asked, like, "Where did you, where did you announce it?" And I just announce everything on Twitter. So uh, I don't really, I don't like sending out a lot of emails. It's very expensive on our end, and and um, and so if you want to know what the Pixelcore is doing, follow Pixelcore. That's uh, Pixel C O R P S with an S. Uh, follow Pixelcore, and uh, that's just straight announcements. There's no silliness. It just tells you when things are happening. Uh, if you want some silliness added to that, then follow Alex Lindsay. <laughs> one word. It's uh, with an A Y, not an E Y. But um, yeah, uh, but uh, but uh, and I announce all the like when we're going live on stuff, and we're going to be doing a lot of that this summer. Um, that's the place to check it out. So make sure to uh, yeah, if if you want that kind of silliness, um, you know, then uh, then follow me. Excellent. And Mr. Jeffrey Totaro, where are you at online? Uh, on Twitter, you can find me uh, at Jeffrey Totaro. That's a Jeffrey with an R E Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I hope to be tweeting a lot from the Phase 1 POTUS workshop next month. Uh, that might be a lot of fun. And also um, just over at the, uh, at the website, jeffreytotaro.com. So that's, that's where you can see what I'm up to. Cool. Very good, sir. Derek Story, and where are you at? I think everything happens at thedigitalstory.com. And uh, there you can see all the Facebook and Twitter and all the other uh, link-ups. And um, uh, you mentioned, Frederick, uh, that you actually had someone come up uh, to you at one of your speaking gigs and say that they found out about one of my workshops on Twip. Yeah, totally. Yo, no, that was I, so cool. I, I was, was so I was doing a that. doing a workshop up in uh, up in Sacramento to the the Macintosh user group or the Apple user group up there. Um, it was on photography, of course. And after the end, you know, you get the the questions after the end. One of the uh, the women that were there came up and said, "Hey, I uh, went to Derek's workshop." And I was like, "Oh, you heard about it on Twip?" And she's like, "No, I heard about it on the Digital Story." But I'm a Twip listener. <laughs> so. <laughs> she was just being nice. She didn't want it to come back to me that it was a. I, I bet you anything that was a Twip link. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> anyway, the, the the next workshops uh, that's open is October 15 and 16. So, and we're gonna we're gonna have a great time. It's the fall workshop up here. So, and how do how do they get in? How do they get in on that? Just send me email. Just Derek at the digital dot com. D e r r i c k, and uh, I'll fix you up. 
I'll figure out, get you all the info. And uh, we just have such a great time. I just, I'm exhausted at the end of these things, but I'm just so, so happy, so photographically fulfilled because, you know, these guys, you know, really bring a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. All right. Well, thanks, guys. If you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can head over to thisweekinphoto.com, and there you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter page, and everything else. And if you haven't already, make sure you grab a copy of our 10 TWIP Tips ebook. You can find it at thisweekinphoto.com slash ebook. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.